eyes on me. Cause I'm young, black, and gifted, Nina, all eyes gon' see. If you swung back when faced with a challenge that's meant to break you and balance scales, you ain't average. Now throw your hands on three. Gon' put them up for black, black magic. magic. Black excellence. Black habits. This black medicine. Everything black. Black chucks, black chucks, everything. Everything black. Black hug, black love, everything. Praise black Jesus. What's good, family? Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Black Men in Medicine podcast. I'll be your host, Corey Gatewood, as we dive into another segment of collar popping and gym dropping. Today's episode, we'll have another extremely gifted brother joining us today and Dr. Malcolm DeBon. Malcolm was born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri, until he went on to undergrad at Loyola University, Chicago. Following that, he went on to medical school at Stanford University College of Medicine. Malcolm remained on the farm attending Stanford University for a residency in orthopedics. And next up for him is a fellowship in orthopedic traumatology at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle. So without further ado, welcome Dr. Malcolm DeBond. Thanks. Thanks, Corey, for having me. Appreciate all that you're doing. This is a great setup here. Really proud of you for putting this together. So St. Louis... I know you was a fan of Nelly and the St. Lunatics. I imagine everybody in the community was back then. But instead of stomping in your Air Force Ones, you were off to the side setting up your mission to be a doctor. Tell us when that dream began for you. Yeah, right on. So just first, let me take a quick step back. You know, you can stomp in your Air Force Ones and still be a doctor. Those two things go hand in hand these days. So I tend to wear... Yeah, I, I tend to wear my Air Force Ones and my Jordans in the operating room just so people recognize what it is. But to get back to your question, uh, let's see, for a very long time, I, I can remember I wanted to be a physician. Um, you know, I was kind of blessed and lucky in the sense that, you know, my dad's a doctor and I was exposed at a young age. So um, he was very influential in that decision, obviously. But more so just because of his kind of mission, you know, he basically, he does pediatric hematology oncology and that's, um, where he focuses on taking care of kids with cancer and blood disorders, but more specifically, he does a lot of sickle cell disease research. And as you know, that's a disease that affects our community as black folks. And I was able to see the impact that he was able to have on his patients and his community and, you know, provide a good living for us, um, you know, as his, as his family. So that was something that I've always thought would be something that I kind of wanted to aspire to do. And I enjoyed science and I enjoyed um, biology. So it kind of went hand in hand with my interests. It's kind of where it was inspired from. That's love, bro. I'm glad to hear that you were able to have this type of mentorship in the home. Was this normal for you? Were you surrounded by a good amount of doctors growing up? That's a good question. So, you know, really it was just him, honestly. Um, you know, there aren't a lot of us out there practicing medicine. I was just very fortunate to have that selection bias of having my own father be a black, black doctor. But, um, and that was enough for me, you know, to have the exposure and the insight to at least begin to understand what, what I wanted to do. As you know, we have a pre-medical and a younger audience as a whole that we like to speak to and provide knowledge. And I think your situation provides a very unique experience that you reflectively can paint a powerful picture. Has his impact played a role in how you practice today? 
Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, you kind of are what you know. And, um, you know, there's a lot of attributes that I probably took for granted growing up that my father had that I either consciously or unconsciously emulate now. And um, that's why it's so important to associate yourself around role models that you can foresee yourself being like and want to be like because you tend to model their behaviors and their tendencies and their perspectives and influences and, um, and focus. So that, uh, that definitely has shaped the physician and person that I am today, man that I am today. As a follow-up question, since you were blessed to have such a strong mentor in the home, what are some of the things you recommend, not only to students, but people in general, as they seek a mentor and aspire to grow? Yeah, I, that's a really really important question because mentorship is key. And I just cannot under that, you know, you need to have people in your life that support you that have gone through similar experiences as you and know how to help you navigate your future through all the inevitable obstacles and support you with resiliency to overcome those obstacles. So that is critical to success is finding a mentor that, yeah. <laughs> you can count on. So just to hi- highlight that. So, but to get to your question, um, you first need to find people that you trust that have experience overcoming things in their life that you foresee that you would have to overcome. And that may not, I, I speak broadly because that may not be specifically in medicine. You know, a lot of, um, you know, if you play a sport, you know, I grew up playing soccer. A lot of my coaches were potential mentor figures for me uh, just because, you know, I looked up to them and, and they would have the wisdom and experience and support and love to be able to help me through issues or help me decide between one option versus another option. You know, some of these fundamental choices that you have growing up really shape your future. And you basically just need to find people that A, care about you, and B, have the experience uh, and capacity to provide insights or perspectives that you may not see on your own. And then that way, you can take the information that they bring to the table and dissect it and really reflect on it to be able to be at peace with your own decision. And then your mentors will support you through that. So, you know, ideally it's in medicine. That's great. You know, but not everybody has the opportunity to be exposed to a black physician um, or um, even a black professional. But you can find people not necessarily even in your race that still meet those two criteria of caring about you and having that experience that you seek that can help you be as mentors. Or you can find people outside of black folks outside of medicine that uh, can do the same thing for you as well. The caveat is that it's important to find, to seek um, opportunities to interact with people within medicine, because there's going to be some nuances to the medical field and specialty specifically in that path, that long onerous path that we have to endure in order to become a physician, that their perspective from a medical doctor is going to be important to lean on to help navigate through that path. So, you know, if you can't find it 
if you can't find a black medical physician to latch on to and pick their brain, then the next best thing is to, you know, find another, find another medical physician that is willing to help you um, navigate through this. And it doesn't have to be a black, black person. Dropping gems, Malcolm. I'm glad I have my bag ready to tuck a few of them gems away. But I love what you said there because it speaks to my experience a bit. You know, I was a product of a single family household growing up in the inner city of Boston. And I didn't see my first black male physician until my second or third year at Stanford. And to speak to your point, I seek the opportunity to approach him and ended up having an outing at a Warriors game. Shout out to Dr. Sims. And it's not that I doubted that I could become a doctor, but he definitely cemented the dream as we discussed similar aspects of our background. And it was a voice I needed to hear at the time, simply just to say, go get it. So wise words, man. One of the many things I admire about you is that you're very low key. So I'm going to take a second to big you up a little bit. You know, in medical school, you excelled in the classroom while being president of SNMA and other student organizations. You're now a chief resident at Stanford, putting out several publications. How have you been able to persevere through this grind and do it on a high level? Yeah, I feel it. So uh, that key, that word is key, perseverance. And I think that um, another word goes hand in hand with that, and that is called resiliency. So this was a word that was introduced to me by one of my mentors uh, when I was in medical school. But it's like a fundamental word if you really break it down a little bit. You know, if y'all remember like Mortal Kombat or whatever, right? Like the the move that like, you know, would be like the counterpunch is resilient, right? Like somebody basically takes a shot at you and you may feel the heat a little bit, but you knock them out with a counterpunch and that's the resilient move, right? So bouncing back, bouncing back stronger than you were before. And that fundamentally is an important attribute to success because um, there's going to be plenty of times along this journey that you may fall short, you may make a mistake, but it's all about how you respond in that moment that really judges is a true testament to your character. And that gritty can't stop, won't stop pursuit of your path and pursuit of excellence and pursuit of your dream is what sustains you throughout this long journey. So regardless of your circumstances or situation, you know, and um, that's something that I think us as black folks can really focus on and have that intrinsic strength in us just through all the things that have happened to us over the past 400 years of being in this country that have groomed us to show resilience and grit and determination and strength through obstacles and uh, external pressures that may be trying to crush our dreams. We can't succumb to those. We, we have to rely on ourselves and our mentors, our support system, um, and our, our strength to be able to overcome these. And that, that resilience is key to identify when you need it, name it, and then take pride in moving forward with it. But on this topic of resiliency, do you feel that this hard work and resiliency has been recognized by your peers? Yeah, hey, that's a that's another outstanding question. Um, 
that I haven't really thought about much. You know, a lot of this, the reason why you do a lot of things in medicine obviously isn't for yourself. It's A, for your patients, most importantly. And um, B, for your family and, and, and for your community. Um, and then maybe a few rings down, you might do it for yourself and, and that satisfaction that you get from um, knowing that you are contributing to society in a meaningful way. But the most important part as a physician is your patients. And your patients totally appreciate you pursuing excellence, giving good care, and and really helping them. So that in itself is able to sustain that feeling of satisfaction. Um, and then, you know, you're kind of alluding to a point that is at play in medicine, and that's like appreciation from just like, um, you know, the people that you're around and, and, and that may or may not be your patients, probably won't be your patients, you know, just society or, you know, the staff or, you know, the people that are you're just kind of interacting with. And I, I would say, you know, for the most part, people respect doctors in, in a way that is unique because they view that profession as being able to um, be a valuable asset to in an altruistic way to the community. So that's that's awesome. Like I've never showed up at some place and they figured out I was a doctor and people started getting disrespectful. It was totally, it's always the opposite, right? People always want to speak to you about anything, you know, your journey or maybe a personal problem they have with a medical issue or, you know, it's almost like an instant, like credible, uh, card that you, that you get. So I, I, it's, that's cool. It's not something that, um, is a priority for me or should be a priority, I think, for others because the most important thing about being physician is your patients and, that, you know, the people that you take care of. But it's kind of nice. Love to hear you say that, man. For me, and I'm sure others that are coming up through this track, you provided a nice light at the end of the tunnel. And I think it's important that we hear that from time to time on this journey. I'm also happy to hear that you get that internal fulfillment. Has there ever been a situation where you haven't received that line of respect? Oh, yeah. No, that's... Uh... That has happened all too frequently, honestly. Um, but at the same time, it's a it's a tricky situation because you know you want to be like, well, I am the doctor, you know, and then why are you even asking me, you know? Because it seems like there's some unconscious bias or some surprise that is at play when you walk into a room and they see a young black man wearing a white coat. And that goes with a lot of conversation about unconscious bias, institutional racism, access to care, a whole bunch of stuff um, that we may save for another day, but goes without being said. However, your first job, which is kind of nice, when you take that Hippocratic oath and when you decide to really be a man for others and be a physician is you're trying to help a patient, right? Even if that patient doesn't know better enough to help themselves. And that sense of empathy and altruism, where you take yourself and your personhood out of the situation and really just focus on the patient as a 
patient physician relationship can help you find grace in those moments where you may have been offended um, by a patient's colorblind racism or overt racism. And um, that's easier to say than do for, for sure. But I think it's important to try to be mindful of the whole reason why you're here is really to help the person in front of you, even if that person doesn't even deserve your help. And, uh, and not to personalize the situation and, and really try to be a professional um, provider for that person. But I do feel it's important that we debrief, whether that's to a colleague, a friend, or a family member, because this is something that many minorities are faced with, regardless of profession. You're absolutely right on that. And just, uh, just to emphasize what you're saying, what I was referring to earlier is how you handle that interaction in the moment, right? And then, and then you have to be able to compartmentalize, do your duty, do your job, take yourself out of that. And then, but then you still have to, you're human. And once you're outside of that professional interaction, then that's when it is, like you said, important to be able to reflect and discuss issues that, uh, you know, can affect you. And this can be one of them. So um, that's why having a support system of other Black folks that are, you know, going through similar experiences or other physicians that that may have the similar um, perspective as you, to be able to discuss these stressful, unfortunate circumstances that are intrinsic to, unfortunately, us being a minority in a majority environment. And um, it's not a... It's not an excuse. It's something that we need to acknowledge and take care of each other and support each other through those discussions that we're going to have with each other about these issues. No question about it. You brought up support system, particularly being a surgical resident. How do you balance work and tend to your support system? It's complicated. So um, I think that as with most things that take a lot of time and energy, you know, you, there's a, there's a cost and sacrifice associated with pursuit of excellence and surgery definitely falls into that. Our medicine in general, being a physician falls into that realm where you're going to have to make sacrifices in order to be successful. Now that doesn't mean you need to sacrifice your family or your relationships or your friendships. Um, but it does mean that you need to communicate with your family, friends, what your obligations are, what your schedule is like, and allow them to accommodate, accommodate that. And sometimes that can lead to stressful conversations. But the first kind of defense of your first kind of insurance policy when you're under a lot of pressure with work and you're still under some pressure with your family is to communicate that to your family. Cause most people that you're around that love you, they're going to want you to be successful and they want to support you. And it's just there. And it's up to you to at least be able to communicate what you're going through such that they can understand how they can help you. And I think a lot of tension happens specifically when there's miscommunication or expectations are made that are not being uh, realized uh, in your relationships are not unrealistic expectations. So 
communication is key. Keeping people around you that support you and that love you um, and, and support your dream and your ability to become a physician and help others in this noble way um, is important. And then like balance is key, right? Like you have to have, you know, mind, body, and soul. Everything's got to be balanced up. You can't be all about work and not take care of your body, not work out, not watch what you eat, not, um, you know, pray, meditate, or what, what have you. You have to be able to stay balanced and stay whole to perform as well as possible throughout all your domains. And, um, oh, and then also there's going to be some instances where, where being present for social or family events is more, some instances are going to be more important than the others. So you prioritize the instances that are most important, like a wedding or, um, you know, uh, graduation of your you know sibling, something like that, where your presence in that moment, you can put a lot of chips in the bank and you can really get the most out of it through that interaction with your family. And whereas like something that may be more casual and less important, you know, you may have to stay home and sacrifice that and study. So, you know, picking and choosing where, when you can make gains on your professional um, kind of development versus where you can make gains on your personal and your relationships and, and try to stay, try to stay high yield as possible and not waste, waste energy there. Can you draw any other parallels to other aspects of your life that may have prepared you for this type of work-life balance? For me, sports was a big part of my life. You know, football was something that really helped me realize how essential teamwork was for success. I'm with you on that. I think that there's a lot of things that you do in life that help you with your career that may not be directly related to your career. So athletics is one of those things, right? Learning how to work as a group, learning how to have a common goal uh, as a, in, in playing a sport or a team sport is totally like being in the hospital and being on a medical team and trying to take care of a patient, you know, that may have a, a bad problem. And a lot of the characteristics of a good team in athletics is translational to what you see on outstanding medical and research and academic teams, um, you know, in the professional domain. So I think that a lot of the things that you can learn in sports are completely translational to what you need to have in order to become a good physician and, and, a, and a good teammate to your colleagues. Um, that being said, it's a little more nuanced too, though, because you don't want the commitments that you have in athletics to have to compromise your academic growth, which for undergrad students who play a sport, may or even high school, can sometimes be conflicting. So the way you do that is you stay regimented, you have a schedule, you know, you put prioritize the first things first, and your priorities if you're going to become a physician long term, right, is not going to be uh, most important how fast you can run the 40, but it's going to be how good you can do on your biology test. And then after that, after you know you're going to get an A on your biology test, then you, you're hitting the weights and you're hitting the sprints and you're, you're getting your 40 time down, for example. 
you know, but you just have to, you can do both, but you have to prioritize what's most important in the moment. And I think that's crucial. Time management and regimen, right? Uh, totally. Keys for success. And, and, and that's all the way up the ladder, I imagine. Um, so let's talk, let's talk next steps, Mel. Uh, you, mm-hmm. So you're heading to Seattle. Um, you're going to be doing yeah. your orthopedic fellowship in traumatology. Um, mm-hmm. what, do, what do you hope to accomplish in your, your new experiences? Yeah, no, I'm real pumped about that, you know. Um, basically going to be fixing fractures for a living. And I'm going to a place where there's tons of work to do, tons of injured patients that need help. And there's a long legacy of um, really influential people in the field that have trained there. So I'm really blessed and happy to be going there next year. Um, looking forward to just working hard and learning, you know, being humbled and learning. You know, it's crazy. You go through so many different uh, chapters and sections in the, the journey to becoming a fully autonomous physician and surgeon, orthopedic surgeon. And uh, this is the last chapter. It's like my subspecialty training in orthopedic trauma surgery for one year. My last time to train with oversight. And I use the word train because that's what it is. It's a, I have to learn a certain skill set to be not just competent, but excellent at that takes like technical, um, a, a technical uh, expertise. And then after that, I learn it and then I have to practice it for the next 30 years. So it's like the last step and I'm super happy to be closing down on this, you know, decade worth of schooling. But, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's something I'm very much looking forward to just diving in and engaging and, and learning as much as I can and, and soaking it all up. Finish line is near my brother. Black excellence at its finest. So with fellowship being only a year, have you given any thought on whether you'll go academic or private practice? Yeah, it's a very good question. And it's, you know, as with most of the questions that are um, thought-provoking, it's complicated, you know? Um, So you have different types of practices, right? You have your academic practice where you work in an academic center. You take care of uh, patients. You expect it to teach students and residents and potentially do research. Um, And then... You have your community practice where you're really focused on patient care um, and uh, being a a great doctor. And that's kind of your primary and sole focus. You have your private practice where, you know, in addition to taking care of your patients and, uh, you know, giving the very best care that you can render, you're also, they have this, this is also like attribute of um, business and and fiscal responsibility and uh, profitability. And that's appealing to some folks as well, you know? So you kind of have to figure out what gives you the most energy. Like, do you want to teach, right? Do you want to teach other students? Do you want to teach people how to operate? For me, that's a definite yes. Like, I definitely want to do that because I just kind of feel like I want to pay back all the, uh, support and mentorship that have I've been a recipient of and, and be able to 
um, pay that forward to students and residents in the future. So that's something that I would get energy from and, and I will get a lot of satisfaction from. And so that's fundamental. And that's why I want to do academics primarily. Um, and that may be different for other folks. So you can't, you can't really pass judgment on one person's decision over another. But as a student and as a resident, I would encourage you to look into all options, really get a sense on what the day-to-day -day grind is going to be like if you choose to be an academician or you choose to be in private practice. What are the stressors? What are the worst parts about it? And can you tolerate the worst parts about that, um, that job? And, and then, you know, stay true to yourself and, and, and figure out what, what gives you the most energy and try to pursue that. Now, I will say that if you don't know what you want to do specifically, you can always count on pursuing excellence, you know, just trying to do the best as you can, you know, be as productive as you can um, academically. And that will open doors and options up for you to be able to choose at a later date. And um, that's what I'll kind of say to folks that aren't sure or this is maybe a little bit too, or maybe they're a little bit too early in the process to be making the specific choice in what they want their practice to look like. So this tenacity and this pursuit of excellence, where did you get that from, Malcolm? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, um, it's definitely something that has been role modeled for me, I would say. And uh, it's kind of been beaten into my, my head from my father, you know, just kind of growing up and him always trying to hold me accountable to doing the best that I can and to control what I can control and kind of let the chips fall where they may after that point. But I'll always be trying to uh, pursue uh, excellence and, and a, a higher uh, level of uh, thinking and a higher level of accomplishment and, and just really trying to elevate uh, my game and the game around others around me, uh, you know, kind of from this motto of lifting as you climb. So it's a never ending pursuit. You know, you're, you're never going to achieve that pure state of perfection, but just that journey in itself is worthwhile and sustaining. And I think gives, gives me a lot of in, energy and, and uh, focus and determination to, to try to be successful. So you touched on your intentionality of elevating your game and the game of those around you. Do you have any siblings? Yeah, I have a younger sister. Her name's Morgan. Um, you know, she's two years younger than me, so we're pretty close in age. And, um, you know, it's been amazing to see her grow to uh, kind of who she is now today. You know, she's um, she's actually done a lot for Black folks, and I'm really super proud of her for that uh, targeted, uh, targeted focus. It's really been awesome to see her. What does she do for work? Well, she... Um, She's the owner and CEO of Blavity, uh, which is like a kind of like a, a black um, media company and community um, kind of online. So it stands for Black Gravity, but basically it came from the premise of there's not being a forum that shows positive black millennial culture. And, uh, you know, you kind of had like a lot of, negative media depictions of black folks, um, which, you know, you still tend to, to see, 
But before before this, that was really what she was trying to target. She just wanted to have like a positive community of, of Black millennials where it would be a safe place to share culture and, and uh, you know news and and arts. And it kind of transformed into kind of a media company. And uh, she's one of the um, first Black female startup founders and uh, in the Silicon Valley. And you know, she kind of has this successful company that's really blossoming into becoming uh, an influence into our community. It's pretty awesome. If you haven't checked it out, check out Blavity, B-L-A-V-I-T-Y, founded by Morgan DeBond. Were you too competitive growing up? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. I would say a little bit, you know. Uh, there was one point, one point in time where we both played soccer. And, uh, you know, I'm actually the older brother, so I'll take it to her a little bit. Uh, and then she switched to field hockey. <laughs> but, uh, but no, it's all love, man. It's all support. It's all love. You know, I'm just super proud of her and uh, her ability to, to really focus her passion in business and, uh, and media towards a cause that is so so dear near and dear to our you know to us and that's really to try to create positive imagery and and, and connections in our, our black millennial community it's awesome so it sounds like she was another force of positive energy in your home truly a home of black excellence outside of her did you have any other peer accountability yeah no that's a it's a good question you know you you are kind of the company that you keep and uh, your support system is important but that being said, you know, you know, I have many friends that don't really have the same uh, level of focus to whatever they're doing in their professional or, you know, careers. But they're great people, and 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 they they show me love and and they support what I'm doing. And just because the people that are around you may not be moving forward in their lives with the same uh, kind of focus or or uh, intention, doesn't mean that they aren't going to be supportive and loving of you and, and help you on your journey. You know, so I think that you kind of have to be cautious of that so-called, you know, you are the company that you keep because, you know, to be honest, you need to be able to be around all types of folks and, and, and to stay in touch with, you know, all walks of life. So that's an important attribute to becoming a good physician and being able to connect with people. You know, that being said, it's really, it's an internal uh, barometer and an internal gauge of uh, of success. I think kind of you are able, one is able to define for oneself, you know, and um, you sure you have your external influences and, and uh, pressures that can help you elevate your game and to continue to move forward to find success in that pursuit of excellence. But ultimately, it's got to come from within. Uh, it's got to be an internal fire that you have to really move forward and, and to progress and you set your own goals. And, you know, the important part of that, I think, is you have to be honest with yourself, honest with your effort and focus and, and, and be proud of that or reevaluate that to if, if you're not necessarily meet, meeting the marks that you want to set for yourself to adjust. And, and to find ways to find that success in, in that natural kind of resonance of pursuit of excellence, right? Um, but, you, but at the same time, 
you know, if you do everything that you can, the best that you can, you, you know, you have to be at peace with that. And that, that peace, that true peace only comes with an honest, um, effort of you've been able to look yourself in the mirror and say, I did the best that I can. Absolutely. And then at that point, that's when you let the chips fall where they may. Big facts, big facts. I mean, I love it. I hear with, uh, in every word, you know, that can't stop, won't stop mentality. Um, what do you do for self-care? Yeah, it's important to stay balanced, you know, self-care, you know, know when you're, you know, be kind of monitoring yourself when you're, when you're stressed out and, uh, you know, resort to healthy ways to deal with stress. So, um, you know, for me, it's, you know, my relationship with my wife is, is a huge, huge, uh, support for me. And, and, uh, you know, I love spending time with her and, and hanging out with her. So just, uh, getting away from, you know, the whole medical field and being able to, you know, detach and, and to spend quality time with your loved ones, I think is a great way to relieve stress. You know, there's a, there's a caveat to that though. You don't want to still be in your work mode and your professional mode of engagement and be interacting with your family members like that. You know, you got to have to be able to compartmentalize the stress you're feeling at work and be able to truly be present when it's time to engage with your friend, family and friends. So, um, you know, that's a that's a cautionary tale where you don't want to project the stress that you have at work on your family and friends when you come home. Doesn't mean you can't have candid conversations um, about work with your significant others or with your friends and family, but you do have you do have to be mindful that you're not projecting that energy that may or may not be negative, you know, onto your your family or friends. Um, and then that being said, you know, when you have more work related stress issues where you really want to get into the weeds and the details of what's going on and really try to figure things out. That's when, you know, your colleagues and your friends that are in your profession will really become a, a huge asset. So I would say you, you always got to have some type of ally that is going through the similar um, program or process or, you know, uh, educational stage that you're in. because then y'all two can really be sharing information with each other and similar experiences. And you'll realize that you're not just on an island going through this, that many people are going through this together, which is why I think a program that you're, you're making Corey with, uh, with the uh, black men in medicine is really fundamentally important because we have to be each other's support system because we will know what each other are going through. We don't have to spend the extra energy trying to convince somebody that this such and such thing had happened was racist. Like, we know what's going on. We know what we're, what we're up against. So we're able to confide in each other and trust each other's perspectives uh, based upon that common experience. Yeah, uh, I, I completely agree with you 100%. Um, I mean, even when we do have, I know everyone's busy, we have these you know, crazy schedules, but the, the precious moments that we do get to spend with each other, it's always refreshing and refueling. And I think it's a very essential piece uh, of the puzzle along this track and, and on any pursuit of excellence for that matter. Um, but totally. you said, just, sorry, just huh? to quickly, uh, just reinforce something. I just wanted to say, it's also important to be vulnerable to the people that you trust. 
you know, if you, you know, oftentimes as, as black men, we're always taught to be strong and uh, reserved. And I understand that and I appreciate that. But just because you're strong doesn't mean you need to not be vulnerable in the right moments with the right people. And um, that is important, I think, for mental health and stress uh, management. Absolutely. So uh, you said that, you know, that quality time and deliberate focus, you know, what are some of the things that you and your, your wife uh, like to do when you kind of tap out and focus on one another? Yeah. Um, well, we all like to eat and cook. So, you know, that's, <laughs> uh, that's something that we can do together. What's your you favorite know? meal? Um, favorite meal? Shoot. Let's see. Her birthday was last week and as a little birthday dinner, I made her some, uh, Fried catfish, you know, like fish fry style, and some homemade mac and cheese. It was pretty good. I think she enjoyed it a lot. Um, but for me, I, you know, I personally, would, from St. Louis, where barbecuing is fundamental to our culture, you know, not just St. Louis, but black culture in general. So, you know, I like to throw some things on the grill for sure and just cook out and uh, waste a Sunday outside with, with uh, family and friends and some grilled meats, you know, some smoke. Coming from the barbecue pit. If you had to pick a cut. Cut. I like ribeye. I like a little fatty. Yeah, I hear that. I'm a New York strip guy myself, and I'm, I'm right in that medium range. But uh, hey, you, you can, right there's nothing you can uh, substitute for a nice, you know, grilled steak to perfection. So, yeah, that's awesome, man. Thanks for uh, sharing that sharing that with us. So, you know, you, 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 know, you got your, your, your wife. That's been kind of holding you down through residency. Yeah. Um, did you guys get married uh, before medical school, during the medical school process? Yeah. Good question. So uh, so I met her when I was in medical school, kind of towards the end. Um, I had like a research year where I had a little bit more free time and was transitioning to start really focusing more on kind of the next phase of life, which entails a little bit more responsibility, you know, with residency coming up. So. I was kind of looking for more of a serious relationship and, you know, God blessed me with her and, uh, and it was, it was a wrap after that, you know? So, so yeah, so we were dating for, um, let's see, from, uh, kind of the last year of medical school and first couple of years of residency and before second year, which is t- traditionally the most difficult strenuous time in residency for orthopedic surgery. You know, when you're a junior residency in consults, I was like, shoot, it's time to lock it up, you know, and, and, uh, and move on. So got engaged that second year and during my third year of residency, we got married. It's been a couple of years since then. Have you seen any uh, differences in how you're treated or approached being a, a married man in medicine? That's a great question. Um, I think I have two answers. So the answer to your question ultimately is yes. Um, but it's only in ways that don't matter amongst people that aren't very influential to, um, kind of your day to day grind. You know, I would say, you know, maybe on a superficial level, people are more willing to, uh, interact differently with a single guy than a married guy, primarily 
folks from the opposite, you know, gender, right? Like, uh, right, so, right. Uh, once they, you know, some folks will find out you're married. You're married. You know, sometimes they'll interact with you a little bit differently socially, um, which is fine and probably appropriate. But uh, at the same time, most importantly, taking the social thing out of things professionally, when you know, in your professional relationships, it's really just all about the quality of work and your ability to get the work done. You know, and to be professional with your relationships that you have, um, you know, and being cordial and being a good colleague. And that has nothing to do with your marital status, you know? And um, that's one of the, I think, important uh, concepts of being a professional is that one of the saving graces that you're allowed to let your work speak for itself you know, and no matter what necessarily may be going on in your perf- your personal life, you can still have the opportunity to have your work be how you're held accountable and be judged by your work. Now, we all know that gets a little bit gray when people uh, start, biases start to come into play and in how they're evaluating your body of work. And as Black men, we often uh, all have to be twice as good to get the same level of recognition. But still, at the end of the day, you know, your objective body of work, if you're in the right situation and environment, is going to be what you will be held accountable and and judged against. And um, that's one of the reasons why I like medicine and academia specifically, because you you have an ability to contribute to advance in the field through research and through your uh, engagements and uh, opportunities to be part of an academic community and and that you know things that you list on your cv so to speak and in that body of work you know people can't take away from you no matter what type of bias they have right implicit or otherwise yeah totally so um i'm gonna uh, switch gears just a bit um because you, right. you was bringing up that um, the importance of the environment in which you're judged in um, and, and and speak to kind of the current news that we have on hand, the current issues that we're seeing with this systemic racism and um, the powerful protests that we see. Um, what is What are some changes you would like to see in our community? Great, great question. So uh, I'll just start by saying, but these are, these issues have been, going on in our community for hundreds of years, you know, it's very hopeful that now they're starting to get the attention of, you know, the greater community of folks that aren't necessarily affected by it as directly as Black people, right? You know, I feel like America, we have America's attention right now, uh, which took an extreme amount of circumstances to bring together, including COVID including undisputable video evidence of uh, a, a black man's murder by the hands of the police and uh, including a string of murders and violence that has continued without any ramifications to the uh, people doing the 
uh, race crimes. You know, it's like an extreme level of circumstances that has brought this to somewhat of a, a hopefully a breaking point where the entire country is attention is grasped by this uh, systemic racism that has plagued black folks since the beginning of time, pretty much. So that brings me hope. Now, to translate that hope into what I would like to see specifically, you know, because let's just talk about action items. You know, I think that police brutality is ridiculous, always has been ridiculous, and has been so systematic uh, that you have to change the system in order to uh, really change the threat of police brutality and targeting of black folks, especially black men. So that has to be policies, and that has to be policies that hold police accountable so that they have a deterrent. Because right now, you know, there's no deterrent. Like, you can kill a black man, and very likely you'll have no ramifications if you're a police officer, which is crazy, right? Because there's so many avenues that they seem to have to get themselves out of trouble in that circumstance. So to have a third body that is able, so an independent body that is able to hold the police accountable to discriminatory practices, uh, I think needs to happen immediately uh, and is a major action item that is, a tan is tangible to be done uh, now, right? And that has to come from the policy leaders um, and uh, has to be accepted by the police unions. Um, but that's a mandatory thing that I think is obviously completely overdue and can change people's behavior overnight because of the pressure that they will face from the accountability that will be imparted upon them if they engage in uh, police brutality and targeting. So that's, that's one thing. And that's, I think, the most tangible thing that needs to happen, like, immediately. Okay. And then the other thing is kind of more soft and a little less tangible, but more important. And um, that's just, like, the generalized awareness of racism in this country and how it has been so woven into the cloth of America through the history of this country and through the uh, countless, countless, countless repeated uh, marginalization and uh, systemic um, oppression of Black folks in this country, that needs to change through the perspectives of and conversations that other people are having that are non-Black. You know, Black folks, we know what's going on. We've been knowing what's going on. This is nothing news to us, right? This is not you know, people say current events, but this is these are past events. These these events have been shared through our communities through word of mouth and or video evidence through, you know, the very beginning of our history in this country. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, you hit on accountability, which is uh, I absolutely agree. We definitely need to hold these. Uh, we need to hold law enforcement accountable. Um, you know, you are in a profession where, you know, you operate on people and you have to be held accountable through mal 
malpractice insurance. Because if you make a mistake, there are consequences to that. But do you think that is something that can translate into uh, law enforcement where they have some kind of insurance policy to keep them accountable? It has to. It has to. And I'm not sure if it, it says there's going to be some insurance issue, but, you know, it is insane to me the stark contrast of the accountability and training needed in order to take care of somebody as a medical profession compared to the accountability and training needed to take to protect somebody as a police officer. Um, it's just so crazy because think about the, uh, I was just having this conversation this morning with my wife, but think about the amount of time, training, education, hands-on training, apprenticeship level training that one has to go through in order to become a surgeon independently practicing and making decisions that have the ability to affect somebody's life or death, right? Which is over 15 years post high school of a lot of hard work compared to the amount of education and training required by a police officer, which may or may not include a stint in community college, to be given a badge and a gun and to be able to have the outcomes of other people's lives or deaths in their hands. Like, it's insane to me the lack of required uh, education and training. Because with the education and training comes a level of awareness. When you're around folks that um, have been exposed to higher level thinking and higher education, those folks tend to have a level of awareness and mindfulness where they are able to process events and things that are happening on the fly and not act reactionary, but really think critically about what's happening. And so often in surgery, as I would imagine is true in uh, policing, where things are moment, spur of the moment and you have to act quickly, that those moments require critical thinking and judgment and, and awareness and mindfulness that, you know, is very hard to see and very hard to gain. So, uh, you know, I just, I don't know the solution for that, but I do know that there's a huge discordance between the amount of training and education needed in order to be certified by whatever governing body that you are capable of caring for a person as a physician, right? Compared to that of a police officer the stakes are just as high on both, uh, in both disciplines. So before I let you go, there's one question I ask all of the guests here on the show. What are three principles that you've lived by that have been pivotal in your success to date? Okay. That's a good one. So it has changed over time. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and throw resilience up number one. Resilience is key. We already discussed that. Okay, resilience, work ethic, hard work. You know, you can't cheat the work. Hard work pays off. You can't cheat it, you know? That's just a fundamental truth to success. So resilience, work ethic slash hard work. And then 
And then more recently, I'm going to put empathy out there. Empathy. You know, being able to put yourself in another person's perspective and really see what they're going through and acknowledge that and be able to take that on as information to help frame your perspective is something that is so important when you're trying to care for another person. And that's in general, that's not just with patient care. That's with caring for your teammate, caring for your friend, being a good husband, being a good brother, being a good son. Um, for me, being a good Christian, you know, these things all require empathy. And I would encourage everybody who's listening to this, look up empathy in the dictionary and you'll really get a, a, a feel for what I'm, what I'm talking about. So resilience, hard work, empathy, those three. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Malcolm Debon. Um, you can find him on Instagram at Maldizzy, M-A-L-D-E-Z-Z-Y. As you can see, you know, he left us dizzy with all the gems he was dropping today. <laughs> uh, you can find him on Twitter at the Dr. Junior. That's at the T-H-E-D-R-J-R at the Dr. Junior. And on Facebook, Malcolm DeBond. Um, thank you for tuning in, ladies and gentlemen. Malcolm, thank you for your time. Appreciate you, brother. Yes, sir. Thanks, Corey, for everything that you're doing. And just a, a word to the audience, you know, feel free to reach out to me. You know, I was taught to lift as I climb. And, you know, I think we all need to look out for each other no matter where we are and, and what where we are in this process and what step we're in. And there's a lot of things that, you know, if I haven't gone through, I know somebody that has. And their experience can, can help a whole bunch of folks. So um, happy to help anybody through anything, really. So just reach out. Don't hesitate. And there you have it. Thanks, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we'll be back with another episode of the Black Men in Medicine podcast. Tune in. Right on. Thanks, Corey. We did that. Hey! If you want to find out more about what we're doing with the Black Men in Medicine movement, you can check us out at www.blackmenandmed.com, www.blackmenmed.com, where you'll see highlights of black male physicians holding down the mission to serve in the hospital and surrounding communities. We provide a platform for medical doctors down to the pre-medical level to get connected with mentorship, scholarships, and collaborative medical projects. We are here for change. We are here to stay. Let's get connected. Make sure you tune into another episode of the Black Man in Medicine podcast, bringing you nothing but the gyms.